Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. For Alfred, the next few days were like some terrible dream. He could barely remember how he and his bodyguards had got out of the hall, staggering desperately into the snow, stumbling through the night, freezing and frightened, and yet somehow, thank the Lord, still alive. That first night, they kept moving until sunrise before taking shelter in a farmer's shed. Alfred fell asleep instantly, and by the time he woke, hungry and shivering, the light was fading. For the next few days, they moved only after dark. They scavenged for food, found shelter at dawn, and slept until twilight, before shaking themselves awake to resume their journey. Eventually, the landscape began to change. The hills flattened out. The ground was becoming boggier, marshier. That, Dominic, as you will well know, because you wrote that immortal prose, um, <laughs> is from your new book, Fury of the Vikings, the latest in your splendid uh, series, Adventures in Time. And it describes the escape of Alfred in early January 878 uh, from the treacherous Viking ambush on Chippenham. He has no choice but to flee, and he ends up in the what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle calls the Fen fastnesses of Athelney. Yeah. Uh, the Prince's Island in the Somerset levels, which now, of course, is prime farmland because they've all been drained. But back then was very, very treacherous, boggy, watery, and therefore a perfect hiding place. Um, and so that is where he he takes shelter. So just for those people who have forgotten, as if you could, we're talking about the life of Alfred the Great and his battles against the Vikings, his role in in creating England and England's history. So Alfred was born in 849, wasn't he, Tom? He has been king since 871. It's now 878, as you say. And and frankly, at this moment, you would think he's not going to be king much longer because he's had to flee into these, these sort of sodden marshes, as you say, the Somerset levels. He's been taken completely by surprise. It's clearly very hard for him to communicate with the rest of Wessex, with his kind of thanes and his eldermen. Yeah, because we're told that the Vikings spill out over Wessex. Yeah. So they're, they're seizing all this prime land. Then they think this is their moment. You know, they have effectively, they haven't managed to kill him at Chippenham. He has escaped. But his defeat, as the Vikings would see it, is probably only a matter of time. You know, yeah. they'll catch up with him. Yeah. Uh, or he'll be betrayed or he'll flee. Or he'll flee. flee. He'll yeah. flee. So that's what the King of Mercia has done. Or he'll be captured. And that's what happened to uh, the Northumbrian kings and the Edmund, the King of East Anglia. Yeah. And their fates were notoriously horrible. Yeah. So it's, it's an excruciating situation. Everything is kind of hanging by a thread. And Alfred on the Isle of Athelney, wondering how he can win his kingdom back, how he can defy the Danes, is, of course, the setting for one of the most famous stories in the whole of English history, Alfred and the Cakes. It is. So Alfred, the story goes, doesn't it, that after several days, he and what must presumably be an ex- a very small band of bodyguards, retainers, you know, who knows, 
that they pitch up at the hut of a swine herd and his wife who don't recognize him. I mean, why would they recognize him? They can probably tell that he's somebody, perhaps from his clothes, but he's presumably covered in mud, shivering, miserable, not in the mood for for great banter. (laughs) Um, uh, And so the story goes, I mean, the story that you'll see in in almost every book of English history is that the swineherd goes out to mind his pigs or, or whatever he's doing. His wife is kneading little cakes of bread so they're not kind of, you know, fruit yeah. cakes or something. Yeah, not Mr. Kipling. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and she puts them by the hearth to to bake. She lays them out. And she says to Alfred, who's just sitting there staring to space, very miserable, you know, feeling sorry for himself. Well, surely feeling so- sorry for his people. Of course, Tom. Sorry, I know. I'm not, I, I, I should have known better than to be disrespectful about Alfred yeah. the Great. She goes out and she says, mind the cakes. He is thinking only of his kingdom and of God, isn't he? That's the trouble. <laughs> thinking of his people. Yes, thinking of his people. He is, as you said in the last episode, he would make a very, very poor contender in the Great British Bake Off because when the swine herd's wife comes back in, the cakes are burning. They're blackened. <laughs> and she beats him around the head with a broom, doesn't she? That's always the scene that you always get. She's absolutely furious. She, has, you know, she doesn't care who he is. She's just absolutely outraged that he has burned these cakes. So do you think this is true? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, well, no, I mean, who, who knows? I want it to be true. And, f- and this is the, you know, this is my red line. This is the hill on which I will die <laughs> as a historian that, uh, that Alfred definitely did burn the cakes. What do you think, Tom? I mean, what's it? But actually, what's, what's it a story about? What's the meaning of the story, do you think? I think it's possible. Um, well, it's, so it's late 10th century. Um, so it's the kind of anecdote that might be passed down. But kings in disguise are very popular figures in medieval yes, literature, aren't they? they are. And so that's that's why people say, oh, this is just a kind of traditional tale. Yeah. But those stories are, are popular because they're so dramatic. And you could equally say, well, this story was remembered because it was a dramatic story. So I wouldn't necessarily poo-poo it. I think it's Well, possible. let's say we think it's true, Tom. Yeah, let's say let's, we think let's it's true. Let's put Pinnacles to the mast. But uh, Dominic, there's another story, isn't there? about Alfred's time on Athelney that is actually much more stirring. Well, you would find it more stirring, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, wouldn't you? So we have already mentioned this story in our episode on St. Cuthbert. Yeah. That uh, Alfred, again, is he's not moping because Alfred doesn't mope, but he's pondering ways to uh, redeem his people. And meanwhile, all his all his thanes are off trying to fish, but they can't get any fish because uh, the rivers seem to be empty. They don't have much food left. Uh, an old man appears his head covered with a cloak and he asks Alfred for some food. And so Alfred, because he's so noble, gives him all the remaining food. Uh, the person eats it and um, the, the man with the cow goes off. Alfred's men come back absolutely freighted with fish. Suddenly they've started catching enormous amounts of fish. This is all great news. And you know, Alfred is very struck by this. And then that night he has a dream and the cow man reveals himself to be none other than top saint yeah. Cuthbert, whose shrine at Lindisfarne had been sacked by the Vikings, always been a Northumbrian saint, but he now reveals himself as a patron of, of the Saxons as well, of the West Saxons. And he assures Alfred that everything's going to be great. He's going to get loads of fabulous fish. So that's good. <laughs> he's, um, he's going to defeat the Vikings and stay strong and courageous, Cuthbert says, and your descendants will be kings of England and rulers of all Albion. Yes. I mean, that's basically the, the, the interesting twist, isn't it? They won't just be kings of England, but they'll be kings of all the whole Albion. of Great Britain. Yeah, the whole of Britain. 
And so this story, this is almost definitely true, isn't it, Tom? That's, of course it's true. You wouldn't make up something like that. No, definitely not. Uh, and another story that's true also that is told of this period, you took, you, Dominic, in part one, you, you described um, a Viking camp as being a kind of very, very frightening music festival. Yes. And Alfred actually dresses up, it is said, as a minstrel. Yeah. And goes off into the and camp. And infiltrates the Viking <laughs> camp and learns all their secrets. He gigs and they love it. And they all kind of gather around and listen to his latest hits. And he picks up all the that uh, absolutely, information. <laughs> that absolutely definitely happened, Tom. In fact, that story, when I wrote my kids' book, I um, I have to confess I left that story out. Oh, why? It just seems so implausible. <laughs> I mean, it seemed... It's so Walter Scott, isn't so it? So would you believe I put in the cakes, <laughs> I even put in some Cuthbert, but I thought... I draw a line at the, at the infiltrating the Vikings dressed as a minstrel. I also just thought it set the wrong, because I was going for a very Churchillian yeah. kind of tone. Yeah, dressing up as a minstrel is just too fey, isn't it? It's too Errol Flynn. Yeah, the busking is much too Errol <laughs> yeah. Flynn. Because Alfred's very serious, isn't he? There's not much humour with Alfred, I think it's fair to say. Because well, we as know. you said, he's thinking. he spends all his time thinking about God and his people. So this sort of, I, I know what I'll do. It's very <laughs> Errol Flynn. Yes. yes. Yeah. And doubtless there's some Saxon lady who... <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's actually too Henry VIII. That's what it is. Yeah, there is a bit of that. Uh, but, and also it's too, I mean, it's too kind of cod medieval, isn't it? It is. But something that does happen, uh, and, and this I think is absolutely authentic, it's, it's described by contemporaries, is that while Alfred is on Athelney plotting what to do, there is a, a second Viking army invades Wessex and this crosses from Wales um invades Devon and it is led by our old friend Hubba yeah uh, who is the brother of Ivor the Boneless one of the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok Tom <laughs> if you believe the legends yes and he's ca- he's carrying a raven banner so the raven the emblem yeah. of Odin and it's all terrifying you know you're kind of hanging out on Exmoor or something Minehead or Porlock or whatever and suddenly you see these guys approaching um but they are cornered by the uh, the elderman of Somerset um who has a name almost as good as Hubber and his name is Odder yeah Odder so it's Hubber against Odder and Odder defeats Hubber captures the raven banner and i mean that's in tolkien terms that's kind of helm's deep isn't it oh this is a massively big deal tom that's uh because the raven banner of saruman in the sort of legendary versions of this story the raven banner is the sort of badge of the vikings invincibility and i think the claim is that it was woven by ragnar lothbrok's widow and given to her sons to carry to england when they sought revenge and that you know if, as long as the raven banner flew they would never be defeated by the Anglo-Saxons. So when the Saxons, but now it's gone. Exactly. Now, of course, um, more skeptical listeners at this point will be saying (laughs) they've been talking for 12 minutes. Nothing they've said is true. (laughs) Well, I think there is this victory, isn't there? Um, Otto does get his victory. Yeah. You know, think how seriously the Romans taught their standards. Yeah. Maybe they do capture some kind of banner, and this is a tremendous badge and a great fillip to them and a great boost. And, and it's at this point, isn't it, that Alfred sends messages out and says, tell everybody I'm still alive. Let's do this. You know, very sort of, um, you opened the uh, the first episode, yes, didn't you, Tom? stirring the, passage. Immensely. Egbert Stone. Egbert Stone. I mean, it's yep. very J.R.R. Tolkien. And, and there's no reason to doubt that they did meet at Egbert Stone. Well, this is this is absolutely standard practice. If you want to raise the army, raise the fear, raise you know, raise your levies, there are certain places that you meet. And yeah. the idea that you would meet at a stone, set up by his grandfather, the great king who'd made Wessex, you know, the power that it was, absolutely fitting. 
Um, so yes, I think all that is entirely credible. And, um, you know, he, he gives out the summons and the summons is answered. Yeah. Do you, know you know what a great writer says about this scene, Tom? Yeah, tell us. So Alfred rides over the uh, hill and below him spread across the meadows. He could see people rising to their feet. Hundreds, thousands of people, not warriors, not soldiers, but ordinary farmers and villagers oh. gathered in answer to their captain's call. Mm, I'm less convinced by that. Well, you haven't written the book, so it doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, Alfred's army is full of very proficient fighters, and the measure of that is that they win. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. They Two days after the meeting at Egberstone, they catch up with the Danes outside the village of Eddington. Have you been to Eddington, Tom? It's not entirely clear where Eddington is, but I have been to the all the various locations where it is traditionally thought it might have been fought. Yes. Oh, that's good. I would expect nothing less. Uh, you know what uh, What Bishop Asser says about it? He, Alfred shouted like a boar and waved a Bible, and the Danes melted away like snow in spring. Kind of. Alfred attacked the whole pagan army, fighting ferociously in dense order, which is why I think it's improbable that, you know, these yeah. are just humble farmhands. I think this is absolutely shocking. But <laughs> and persevered resolutely for a long time till at length and by God's will, he won the victory. He made great slaughter among them and pursued them to their fortress, hacking them down. And yeah. their fortress is Chippenham, where they sent Alfred running into the night. And they barricade themselves inside, don't they? For a fortnight, Alfred puts them under siege and they give in and they arrive at terms. And Guthrum agrees to not only go away, but to be baptised and to become Alfred's godson. And you know the name that he uh, he takes? Of course you do. Athelstan. Athelstan. So let's talk about this, because this is a sort of, to some people, it might seem that after these various sort of stirring legends, the cakes, St. Cuthbert, impersonating a minstrel, meeting at the stone, ordinary farmers and villagers, Tom. Yeah, the ordinary sons of Wessex. To cap answer their captain's call. After all this, he beats Guthrum, hurrah, hurrah, tremendous victory. What a great turning point. And then he does a deal with Guthrum in which Guthrum is baptized and is actually sent off to become king of East Anglia as a Christian king. So this now returns us very much to the to the world of realistic history, doesn't it? Rather than legend of realpolitik. Yeah. That Alfred knows the Vikings actually can't just be defeated and driven back into the sea. They're much too powerful for that. He has to do a deal with Guthrum. And they both win from this deal, I would say. So Alfred has his victory, and he also now has a Christian neighbor. Yep. Who, and, and Alfred is his godfather, that's right. Isn't Alfred a sponsor of the baptism? Yeah, so he gets baptized at, at, at a place called Allah, not as in the Muslim God, but no. A-L-L-E-R, -A uh, which is the church that was closest to Athelney. Yeah. And so it's very possible that that was where Alfred was going to pray you know, during yeah. his time on Athelney. Uh, so it has a great symbolic resonance. And some of Guthrum's warriors are baptized too aren't yeah. they his his closest kind of companions they wear these white robes as symbols of their purity and they are basically acknowledging alfred as their as what as their as their overlord not quite well they they're acknowledging the model of kingship that alfred represents yeah. as being something worth having so they've moved from a purely predatory understanding of what the anglo-saxon kingships could offer them to a recognition that they could have a part of it. Yeah. So I think it's an acknowledgement that Alfred, Alfred has reserves of authority that are rooted in the dimension of the supernatural, as well as in, you know, his earthly status. And that this is something that 
the Vikings are willing to acknowledge. And it may be that the loss of the Raven banner did actually happen. Uh, you know, there may be that there that all these circumstances have led Guthrum to accept that the Christian king is actually as powerful as mm. as the Anglo-Saxons have said. In which case, he wants to be a part of it. Yeah, and that essential and it, that is the likeliest explanation, I think, because from this point on, Guthrum basically behaves himself. He does, doesn't he? And in, in some ways, this is actually a preview of what will happen to the Vikings more generally. That becoming Christian represents a step up in status, doesn't it? In prestige. Well, I have this incredible coin minted um, in East Anglia a few a few decades later. So it's it's stamped with the name of Alfred's son Edward, but mm. it's a fake, uh, and it's been taken by a Viking pilgrim to Rome. And so what that is showing is, firstly, that you know Vikings are going to to, to Rome. They're obviously Christian, but it's also the fact that they. They want the, you know, they've come to a sufficient understanding of the roots of Anglo-Saxon wealth that they want to have coinage too. Yeah. Um, and they're buying into the kind of, you know, the whole system. So I think that that's what's going on. There is also one further possibility that some historians brute, which I obviously, and I'm sure you as well, don't even want to contemplate, but I should probably mention it, which is that our understanding of everything to do with this period is pretty much dependent on Alfred and his sponsorship yeah and it's possible that the you know the narrative of his utter prostration the utter oblivion that he faced and then this spectacular comeback that perhaps it's been slightly shaped and that perhaps things weren't quite as bad for alfred uh, as as the sources make out and that therefore uh when guthrum agrees to be baptized he you know it's not like it's just the sudden shock of an abrupt defeat but mm-hmm. a kind of recognition that actually Alfred and the West Saxon monarchy cannot be extirpated as easily as the other monarchies have been. I mean, well, Tom, that is we, a possibility. We obviously I do cannot. not it. No, we can't because that would make a mockery <laughs> of about the last 40 minutes of podcasting. So, yes. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, it, it could, the, the, you could, a little bit of shade perhaps on that. Yeah. A little bit perhaps. So, but, you know, th- these sources are being written when people who lived through these events were alive, so they couldn't just make it up from scratch. But no. perhaps there's been a little bit of spin. Yeah. Who knows? I, I like the deal with Guthrum because I think it returns us to the realm of what feels concrete and what feels realistic. Yeah. Alfred looks out, you know, as he looks out from Wessex, he sees that, you know, the Vikings are not just going to, all these thousands of people are not just going to vanish, that he has to find a modus vivendi for the time being yeah. with them. And he can, you know, he can perhaps in the long run push them back erode their boundaries, retake land. But for the time being, if he has a compliant neighbor in Guthrum, so much the better for Wessex. Well, also, I mean, it takes time for the treaty to be signed. So it's not until 886 that um, the the division of basically of Mercia, so a line running from from London up to to the Mersey, um, becomes instituted by treaty. And it sets up for kingdoms with... English on one side, ruled by English laws, and Danes on the other, ru- governed by Danish laws. And so that in due course is where the, the phrase the Dane law right. come. It's not contemporary with Alfred. And for, people who, later, and for people who are not familiar with this, so if you dry, draw a, a diagonal line across England today in 2022, you will generally find that place names, or indeed surnames actually, with Danish, Norse endings, so Thorpe, Thwaite and so on, they're all on the far side, on the sort of the northeastern side of that dividing line. And that deal was to prove massively important 
in the yeah. history of Englishness, English culture, you know, the English language, all these kinds of things. I mean, this goes back to what you were saying, Tom, about contingency. You know, the thing we talk about so often in this podcast, the, the structural changes versus contingencies. Yes. And this gives Wessex a degree of stability that it has not had, certainly under Alfred, certainly not under his brothers, not for a very long time. And the measure of this is that it's not just Guthrum who withdraws, but in um, in 879, this this um, other kind of Viking force that had appeared in the Thames estuary in, in 878, so the same year that Alfred is winning his great victory, they set sail. They think this isn't worth it. Let's go off to let's go off to the continent and plunder yeah. the Franks. And they will be away for I think it's thirteen years, twelve, thirteen years. And basically, those twelve and thirteen years enable Alfred to set to the great labour of restoring his kingdom. And it's that labour I think that really justifies the sense of him as you know as a, as a great king, a king who who deserves to be remembered for for, for the scale of his achievements. Perfect. So let's take a break, Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, to go and drink some mead or whatever, and uh, Eat some fish, yeah, and then we'll return after the break, and you can make your case for Alfred's lasting greatness. I think you're going to be talking. It, it grieves me to say this. I think you're going to be talking about town planning, but I think you're <laughs> yes, also going to be talking about more interesting things. So, <laughs> town planning is really, really. If you love town planning, you're in clover. If you don't love it, don't <laughs> worry. There's loads of other fun stuff too. So, see you after the break. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Tom and I are talking about the uh, life of Alfred the Great and his great struggles against the Vikings. So, Tom, in the first half, Alfred swore off Guthrum, but sent him packing to East Anglia with a new name. And uh, you're about to make the case for Alfred as the great town planner. So, crack on. Well, I'm making the case for Alfred as uh, we talked about in the first episode, that he is great as a, a, a captain in war, but there were yeah. many Anglo-Saxon kings who did that. Alfred is exceptional for the uses that he puts his victories in war to. He seems to have an understanding of what it takes to repair and restore a badly maimed and bleeding kingdom. Yeah. And he he does this in a hard way. He is a hard ruler, like Harold. He's you know he's <laughs> he's not quite as hard as Harold, I think it's fair to say. He's not he's not a soft touch. And he pushes his subjects very, very hard because he recognizes that there has been so much destruction so much ruin visited on on England and on on Wessex in particular that the labor of of restoration demands huge huge effort and he's willing to put his shoulder to the wheel but he demands that his subjects do as well right yeah and his 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 you talked about town planning he basically he recognizes that he cannot stop the vikings without strong fortified centers and without markets that are generating money because ultimately it you know money is this other sinews of war gold yeah. is the sinew of war so he consciously sets out either to restore or repair abandoned roman towns of which the most famous example is london so we we talked um about how he he gets hold of london he he takes possession of london in 886 either from the vikings or from the mercians we're not entirely sure um, and he fortifies it and he clears it of rubble and weeds and singing nettles and lays out street plans. And he does this elsewhere as well across southern England. But he also plants a lot of, of settlements from scratch. 
and he builds huge fortifications. And and the measure of that is, I don't know if you've been, if you've been to Wareham in Dorset. I've never been to Wareham, Tom. It's fantastic. The fortifications are so high that they used them in 1940 as, you know, they that they were going to be used as part of the defences against the seaborne German landing. So they, it's a really you get you get a really really impressive sense of the scale of Alfred's vision there, and it's been estimated that something like maybe five percent of the entire population of Wessex were involved in the construction of these crikey the, these enormous structures, which are called burrs. So that's yeah, where burrs. you get borough. So we talked yeah. about Barry St Edmunds. That's you know yeah. Wherever you have a burr, that's basically the guiding hand of a West Saxon town builder. So these are, I mean, just looking at the list, Exeter, Shaftesbury, Bath, Wilton, Oxford, Wallingford, Buckingham, Warwick. These are towns that are now very familiar across what would have then been um, Wessex and Southern Mercia. It's this sort of network, isn't it? As you said, of, yeah. of strongholds. And the point is, as you said, you know, this isn't an age when you can stop. You, where you can just stop a raiding party dead no. with a kind of border wall, they're going to come. But Alfred's genius is he says, well, let, well, you know, if they come, they come. If we've built these fortified towns, then everybody can just pile into the town, take shelter. And the Vikings are terrible at, they don't really do sieges because yeah. they yeah. don't have siege engines. They don't have all the equipment. They don't have their patience for it. Yeah. This is how we deal with the Viking threat. Yeah. You know, they can attack Chippenham where all the gold is or the monasteries because they're un- relatively undefended. Yeah. But if the if the the, um, the money making facilities, namely marketplaces, and then the gold that is raised from that, and the monasteries are within fortifications, then it becomes much much harder to get hold of it. I, th- I think I mentioned I got this coin minted by Athelflaed, Alfred's daughter, in yeah. Chester, and it shows this tower, and the tower is simultaneously an emblem of the church. So it's ab- about the restoration of God's writ to you know land savaged by by heathens. But it's also an emblem of um, military strength. It's a bulwark. And it's that kind of idea that the, the, essentially the generation of money, the repairing of monasteries, yeah. uh, the construction of fortifications, these are all kind of interwoven projects. And Alfred basically is the father of English urbanism. And so Michael Wood, you know, who, who writes so brilliantly on this period, yeah. he, he's, he's hailed it as probably the most remarkable single achievement of the Anglo-Saxon state. And there's an absolutely brilliant book that covers this. It's wonderful by, uh, by John Blair, Building Anglo-Saxon England. And it, it's amazing to read about it. It's literally state building. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's almost, you know, kind of the kind of thing that you might more readily associate with pharaonic Egypt or something. It's a vast national project of, of infrastructure building. Well, not just that, but I mean, in terms of, um, you need a bureaucracy to do it. So you need a degree of literacy because you need to arrange all this. And he also, part of the, the arrangement is every year, I think just over 25,000 men are basically, they're basically conscripted, aren't they? To yeah. take their turn on the walls of all these burrs guarding the walls and again that requires a level of administrative muscle does yes that that you don't get in most early medieval european it does it does and so this is where alfred's other great obsession which is with the restoration of learning comes in because you cannot have that kind of level of bureaucratic control without scribes and you can't have scribes without learning you can't have learning as alfred sees it without monasteries and nunneries and the measure of his commitment to this is that he himself devotes hours of his, you know, hours of his 
day to learning. And he, he describes this very movingly in, um, he, he does a translation of uh, a text written by Gregory the Great, the great Pope who had sent the missionaries to England and who therefore is always regarded with the utmost respect by, by, the, by the Angles and the Saxons. And Alfred writes in his introduction to his translation of this, he says, I recollected how before everything was ransacked and burned, the churches throughout England stood filled with treasures and books. And it's everything was ransacked and burned. And that's what he's trying to bring back. He's trying to restore treasure and he's trying to restore books. And he makes his court a great center of learning for scholars from the continent, from the Frankish lands, but also from Mercia. And Mercia seems to have survived um, the Viking raids better, perhaps because they arrived at accommodation earlier. Um, And it's really telling that, Alfred is a great, great patron of mercy and learning. And the most distinguished figure is a guy called Plegmund, who becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. Plegmund. Plegmund. I've got one of his coins as well. Have you? Um, in, got, in eight, he's got coins of them all. I've got them all <laughs> in 890. And this sense that the learning of Mercia is part of the common inheritance that the West Saxons share with everybody in what will come to be called England is crucial not just for providing the kind of the bureaucracy that Alfred needs, but also much more kind of potently a sense of Anglo-Saxon identity. Right. Um, and what you're getting in the late 880s and 890s is Alfred is starting to issue charters in which he terms himself king of the, of the Anglo-Saxons. So this is not a phrase that is invented by racists. This is a phrase that <laughs> Alfred is using in his charters to describe this emergent sense that the Saxons and the Angles are in a way a common people. And one of the great projects that um, Alfred sponsors is a translation into English of Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People, which we talked about. Bede, the great Northumbrian scholar who wrote this incredible account of how the Angles and Saxons are given England by God and how they then are brought to Christ and their role as a Christian people. Alfred translates this and he start, you know, he sponsors the use in, in the vernacular of this word Anglekin. So this will become the English. When Aylesworth, his Mercian wife, dies, she is described as the true and beloved lady of the English, Domina Anglorum. So that could be a reference to the Angles of Mercia, but it's yeah. not because she's also the Queen of the West Saxons. So there, Angli is being used to describe both Saxons and Mercians. And this is the great project of state building that Alfred sets in train that will be picked up by Edward, his son, who will conquer East Anglia and in due course take over Mercia, but not before Alfred's daughter, Athelflaed, who I mentioned, whose coin I bought. And you may wonder well, what she's doing minting coins in Chester. She, she marries a Mercian nobleman called Athelred, who has basically become Alfred's deputy in Mercia. He is Lord of the Mercians when he dies. Athelflaed becomes Lady of the Mercians. And again, it's about this idea of, of, of the Angles of Mercia, the Saxons of Wessex becoming a single people. Yeah. And this is the great vision that is realized under Athelstan, who is Alfred's grandson. And none of this would have been possible without Alfred's vision, I think. So he's building in England a new, a new identity, a new, a more capacious identity that would include Wessex, Mercia, other english-speaking kingdoms christian kingdoms and it's based on administration based on the physical concrete stuff of the the burrs but it's also based on all these translated books isn't it that alfred i mean that's a wonderful line 
he says he says at one point very few people can understand latin anymore because it's fallen into sort of disrepair and he says our forefathers loved wisdom and left it to us here we can still see their footprints but we cannot follow them and therefore we have lost both wealth and yeah. wisdom and this idea of that you translate all these great works into english or as he puts it what's he say the language we can all understand yeah i, I th- so i think there are two sides to it i think one is absolutely hard-nosed very very hard-nosed understanding of the reality of power yeah that money is incredibly important to alfred so an admirer of alfred commemorates him as the greatest treasure giver of all the kings i have ever heard of tell in recent times or any earthly king that i previously learned of um so alfred's renown as a kind of you know a great ring giver a treasure giver is is fundamental to his prowess the building of the burrs are designed to provide a, a bulwark against viking incursions which do happen in the 890s so that force that had come to the thames estuary and gone off to the continent they come back and they just batter themselves against the defenses of wessex there's a great battle where they're defeated by athelred the lord of the mercians in alliance with um alfred's son edward and yeah, Farnham. Farnham. great victory alfred himself sees off a, a sea a viking siege at exeter and basically the vikings give up you know they recognize that there's no point and they withdraw yeah. and wessex is fine so the fact that that Wessex has become militarily strong and has become wealthy, you know, it's not an accident. It's absolutely conscious, deliberate policy on Alfred's part. And, and that is what makes him so remarkable a political figure. But I think he does also very, very devoutly believe that uh, he is doing God's will because he is, you know, he describes kingship as a mighty burden. He has this responsibility before God and I'm sure that that is what drives him to these incredible kind of extremes of of, of effort and achievement. Well, in the um, first podcast, Tom, um, so on Monday, you talked about Alfred as a man who had this kind of inattention, didn't you? You yeah. said between, you know, being a sort of kindly Christian and also being a warlord. And what we do know about Alfred is that he's plagued by this these mysterious yeah. internal what appear yeah. to be kind of bowel complaints or something. Some people say they might be piles. Well, so Asser, Asser, the Welsh bishop who writes his biography, he does say they're piles. And he has this, I think, possibly my favorite sentence in any biography I've ever written, where he says that the Lord God blessed Alfred with piles, with the yeah. gift of piles, because it, um, you know, it's, it's a cause of suffering. There's a claim that Alfred prayed for all this yeah. because it would be good for him. Rather like yeah. Thomas More with his hair shirt. Yeah. This was Alfred's. Alfred said, please, you know, torment me. And I, it, there's one biography of Alfred I read that suggested that this came on some around the time of his wedding or something, that there was some sort of sexual yeah. explanation for all this. Have you seen this this claim? Yeah. Yeah. Do you believe it? I don't know. I mean, we can never, we, you know, well, we don't, I, I don't know the details. I don't think that we can get into the, you know, psychoanalysis of Alfred and his wedding night or anything like that. <laughs> But I think what you can say is that Alfred's sense of Christian kingship, you know, he says it himself, it's a burden. It weighs very, very heavily on his shoulders. And why I find him a a moving and admirable figure is that he shoulders this weight to heroic effect. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when, if he does stand before his savior, he could quite legitimately say, I have, I did the best I could. Because Wessex becomes a great and powerful and wealthy kingdom. 
and the people of Wessex live at peace in a way that they had not done for decades. And in due course, this kingdom will become the basis for what will become the unitary state of England. Let's talk about let's talk about that in just a sec. One more thing from Alfred's reign. Um, the Alfred Jewel, Tom. So mm-hmm. that's something that a lot of people will be familiar with. In the Ashmolean, isn't it? This magnificent relic of what appears to be of Alfred's reign. It's in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Scholars have hypothesized that the jewel comes from these special sort of reading sticks, these pointers that Alfred had sent out across the land with copies of a book by Pope Gregory the Great. And because on the what might be the pointer in the Ashmolean Museum, there's the old English inscription, Alfred Mick Hit Gewirkan. Is it something like that? Is that as my old English? Not very good. Sounding good. Better than my, <laughs> as good as my Portuguese? Probably not. Alfred ordered me to be made. And, and this is, we think this is definitely Alfred, as in King Alfred, Tom. I think that's the consensus. Yeah. Yeah. So I that's so. probably the best single, apart from the existence of all these towns, is that probably the most spectacular relic of Alfred's reign, do you think? The Alfred Jewel? Uh, I think it's the most moving and beautiful. I mean, I think the fortifications of Wareham are actually <laughs> right. probably the most yeah. impressive. And also there's one in, um, in London, Queen's Hythe. Uh, which is basically the if you think of the um the embankment in the city of london it's very kind of linear but there is a kind of indentation which is the marker of the the docks that were repaired by alfred so oh, they were, it's right. called queen's hive after matilda yeah. uh, as in stephen and matilda who arrived there but it was originally called athelred's hive and i'd have to check but i assume that that's you know the yeah. athelred who's the husband of of athelflad so you know there are the trace elements of alfred across across southern england uh, but of course, his greatest his greatest achievement is the existence of England. I think, I think he is the founding father of England. Let's talk about that a little bit. So, he dies in eight ninety nine, and there's no England. There's still just Wessex, yeah. right? So, to what extent we know very little about really compared with we have that amazing ass's life of Alfred, um, and we have very and we have reasonably detailed accounts in the Anglo Saxon Chronicle, but we know comparatively little about Edward, his son or Athelstan, his grandson, the rest is history, World Cup champion in the rest is history's World Cup of Kings. To what extent do you think Alfred's reputation is actually resting on the shoulders of those two? And and I guess, um, what's her name? Athelflad. Uh, Athelflad, yeah. Because if they hadn't pushed yeah. the Vikings back further, yeah. if they hadn't built on all this, then we wouldn't even be talking about Alfred the Great, would we? Of course. Um, he is the founding father but they are also are founding fathers and Athelflad is a founding mother. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if you're English and you're happy that England exists, you can be grateful that three generations of rulers were probably the most able Kings, most able rulers that England has had. I mean, they were astonishingly able, astonishingly tough. Boris and Liz Truss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, you know, <laughs> Look at look at Athelstan and Athelflad and weep with the comparison. <laughs> you know these, but these are that's not to sugarcoat them. These were very tough, brutal figures, but they were they were figures who felt themselves to be laboring in a great cause as much as Alfred was. These were very devoutly Christian who felt called upon by you know given the responsibility by God to create and to defend and to preserve their kingdom from heathen men. Yeah, and they do that to spectacular effect and to enduring effect. 
And so you don't think at all that this is all Victorian propaganda? No, I don't. Because that's definitely... So you mentioned earlier on, some people might find that a bit weird if they don't follow academic disputes on Twitter, which I advise you not to do. Um, Because you mentioned the phrase Anglo-Saxon, which has now become um, incendiary in America, and American academia. People don't want to call them. They don't even want to call them the Anglo-Saxons, do they? Yeah, so the word Anglo-Saxon has different significations in different countries. So here it means the Anglo-Saxons, it's the period, basically, yeah. it's, it's shorthand for the period between the Roman withdrawal from Britain and 1066. You know, it's been that for a long time. And uh, in France or in Germany or the continent, Anglo-Saxon basically means English speak, the English speaking world. Well, in France, world. it means Margaret Thatcher and McDonald's, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. Kind of liberal free market economics. Yeah. Um, but, but there is the use of Anglo-Saxon as, you know, Britain, America, Australia, New Zealand, so on, Canada. The, the, the Anglosphere yeah. might be another way of putting it. In America, you know, the, the word wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, mm-hmm. um, there's a sense there that it is used to connote a kind of the 19th century, well, white <laughs> Anglo-Saxon Protestant hegemony. And because that is now seen as something oppressive, therefore there's a, a desire to get rid of the very word it's yeah. seen as providing succor to racists in America. But because America is an ap- imperial country and preponderant, there is an absolute assumption among, I think, too many American academics that their use of a word should have global resonance. And they don't acknowledge the fact, firstly, that in England, Anglo-Saxon has the connotation that it does. It does not connote no, no, know, no, racist supremacy. No. You know, we have the English Defence League, we don't have the Anglo-Saxon Defence League. Yeah. Uh, and they want to call it early English. English is a much more problematic word in the context of early medieval history. Uh, but, but the other thing, but, but the other problem, the other problem with banning the word Anglo-Saxon is it ignores the fact, as we said, that Alfred is using Anglo-Saxon as in his charters. And yeah. it's, it's a word that underpins his entire sponsorship of the idea of the Anglican, the idea of Angles and Saxons being part of a unitary kingdom, a unitary people that in the long run will give birth to England. And this is, this, this is looking forward to the future, but it's also rooted in the past because it's drawing on Bede's great work. You know, and he's writing in Northumbria, the Anglian kingdom of Northumbria, um, a long time before Alfred. So the, the word Anglo-Saxon seems to me by far the best description of yeah. this very complicated period. And, and it seems insane to try and get rid of it. Anyway, that's my rant. No, no, I, I can, Tom, I could not agree with you more. You've never had a better rant on this in this podcast, <laughs> right. in this series. And as, as so often, why get rid of, it's bonkers to get rid of the term that is natural to most people. I think there is a certain, a kind of cultural cringe on the part of too many academics in Britain to truckle to American yeah. hegemony. Uh, they're, they're, they are, in a way, they need to decolonize themselves, to <laughs> coin a phrase. They need to stop behaving like colonial subjects um, yeah. and, and assuming that what happens in America should automatically determine what happens here. I couldn't agree with you more, Tom. I mean, oh, well, you know, okay. well, there we I go. could not agree with you more. So Alfred the Great, when does he get that label, the Great? Uh, well, we said in the first, he, he gets it, uh, I think, in around the 13th century, he's first called it. Yeah. And you think it's, and you, you clearly do think it's justified. Well, we've, div- you know, our first ever episode, we discussed, you know, greatness. Is it, is it a worthwhile term? It's, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think if you're going to call in a, a, a king great in British history, I would go for Alfred. Greater than Athelstan, who won our World Cup. I think so to the degree that um, the scale of the challenge that faces Alfred is that much greater. 
So if you're going to be a great king, you need a great yeah. challenge. Yeah. And we also know more. We know much more about Alfred. And we know we all do. the stuff yes, about, the, about the reading and about the books and about you know his interest in the church. Now, that's not, not to say that Athelstan didn't have those things too, but we just don't know so much about them. It's harder It's harder to, to construct a sense of Athelstan's reign, although not impossible. The other difference, I, I suppose, is that Alfred has the underdog story, doesn't he? And Athelstan is an overdog. He literally yes. becomes the overlord of Britain. Yeah. Whereas um, Alfred hiding out in the marshes with his cakes... I mean, that's a more attractive trajectory. I, I mean, it's the, there's the inherent drama of the, well, the return of the king. Um, yeah. You know, and Alfred, Alfred literally means, you know, cancelled by the elves. So I think there is a kind of an allure of glamour to it that perhaps, yeah. I mean, Athelstan does have it. Athelstan is a glamorous figure, but I think the glamour of Alfred is, is something else. And that's why he is a figure who tends to be known by people, even if they know nothing about history. Yeah, they know about cakes. They have a big sense of him being great. <laughs> yes, um, Alfred the Cake as ten sixty six and all that. Course. And just a word on the Vikings before we wrap up. Do you think there would have been an England without 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 the Vikings? Impossible to say, isn't it? But there's no question that the destruction of the other three major kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England make the conquests of Wessex much simpler over the course of the tenth century. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are, there is no East Anglian king. There is no mm. Mercian king. There is no Northumbrian king to stand in the way first of Edward and then of Athelstan. Because there's an argument, isn't there, that when you look at the beginning of the, I don't know, ninth century or whatever, and you look at the map of what becomes Great Britain, of the island of Great Britain, it's not obvious that there'll be three different 2000 years or whatever. There'll be three places called Scotland, England, and Wales. They could have evolved very differently. So, so this does bear on Scotland, obviously, as well. Because Northumbria had originally stretched up to the Firth of Forth, and the first use of the word England is applied to Lothian. So that's a reminder yeah. that had Northumbria you know, maintained its integrity, not been destroyed by the Vikings, it's likely that a Northumbrian kingdom would have continued to stretch from the Humber up to the Firth of Forth. And if that had been the case, and if you know Lothian and the 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 English speaking stretches of what become Scotland had not become part of Scotland then Scotland would be would probably not have emerged as an English-speaking nation. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So many things turn on this period, don't they? I mean, it's such a foundational. Yeah. I know you always say that, when because when we talk about what should people study in school, you always say that you think it's mad that, not, that everybody in England doesn't study this particular, this moment in history. I think if you're going to secondary school, this would be a great place to start and then do 1066. Yeah. So that you have the story of how England is created and then the great drama of 1066. And, you know, Alfred the Great and William the Conqueror, two top kings <laughs> that everyone well, should know about. A very good king and a very bad man, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Tom, have you any more to say about Alfred the Great or are you, are you spent? No, I'm done. As well? Excellent. I'm done. So I think we should end with another lovely reading. Do you think that'd be nice, Tom? That'd be lovely. So this is from the, uh, the, the this is the very end of the Alfred the Great section in this absolutely tremendous book, which I cannot recommend too highly because I wrote it, Adventures in Time, Fury of the Vikings. If you're aged between 8 and 12, or indeed 8 and 100, this is the book for you. So here we go. When Athelstan died in the autumn of 939, the task of building a united Christian England was not yet finished. Northumbria in particular had thousands of Danish speakers who still worshipped at the feet of Odin, Thor and Freya. Yet Alfred and his heirs had shown that the Vikings could be beaten. And in fighting off the invaders from the seas, 
They had created something that would never die. They hadn't just created a vision of England. They had written one of the greatest underdog stories in all history. <laughs> so don't laugh, Tom. Can boys and girls learn from this? Wait, don't wait, they? wait. <laughs> <laughs> they, had create, they had written one of the greatest underdog stories in all history. The story of a king who found his hope in a peasant's hut and a people who found their courage. The story of a nation battered, bruised, and yet unbowed, who found a fighting spirit they never knew they had, and somehow, at the end of it all, came through to victory. Wow. That is the reading we need now. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.